Let's open to the book of Judges. Father, we thank you for the blessing of our time together. We thank you, Father, if there is anyone here tonight who was unable to stop today until just now, we thank you that we have this time. I thank you we can catch our breath and, and let the rest of the day just kind of crash and burn around us while we pause and consider the one thing that matters, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do recognize this. We are fallible human beings. We are flesh, but we recognize that Jesus, you are all that matters. You are all that counts. It is truly all about you. And I thank you for this simple but powerful truth that is life-changing. It's heart-altering. And I pray you would get that into us tonight as we study. And I pray as Les said, these would not just be words falling on our ears. That we wouldn't be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. That we would be changed, Father, as we study, as we consider, as we pray through, and as we live out the words that we see in your holy scriptures. Make the book alive to us, Father, tonight. We pray in Jesus' precious name and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, it's been said that even a bad government is better than no government at all. You may or may not agree with that, but even in the time of great government-led persecution, under the rule of the Emperor Nero, Paul wrote the following words to the church in Rome. He said in Romans 13, verse 1, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Now, as much as I love freedom, I function better under some kind of direction or rule. I do better when I know what the rules are, when I know what my boundaries are, when I know how I'm supposed to play. And that's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, when it comes to government and rule and authority, the Bible tells us, Psalm 2, verse 6, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, the Lord says. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, to the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now you hear a verse like that and you might say, wow, that sounds kind of like a dictator, someone ruling with a rod of iron. And I say, exactly. And that's what I want. A dictator. Not like so many dictators we've seen in world history. The problem with a dictatorship, and I've shared this before, a a dictator is not a bad concept if the dictator himself happens to be perfect. That's the problem that we've seen in the past with men who conquered or who ruled as, as dictators was the imperfection, the sin nature, which causes nations to go down. But if you had a man who was perfect in every way, absolutely just, 100% merciful in all that he did, complete wisdom incarnate, then I say a dictator is the way to go in government and we're going to have it. We're going to have it. It's not going to come about after this election cycle or through this election cycle. I can promise you that. Regardless of who is elected in the next year, it's not going to come in America. You might say, okay, but even this concept of Jesus as our ruler on earth, as our king, 
even in that concept, when I read something like Psalm 2 saying he's going to rule with a rod of iron, it makes me a little uncomfortable. That sounds kind of harsh. And I say, bring it on. Because Psalm 23, verse 4 tells me his rod and his staff, they comfort me. And that's the way Jesus wields authority. And that's what I'm looking for. Now, I tell you all this because as we enter into the book of Judges, you need to understand it's, it's an historical bridge between Joshua and the installment of the first king of Israel. We'll see that when we get into 1 Samuel. We've got Judges and then Ruth. Ruth is a real short book, four chapters, and then we're right into Samuel. And when we get to Samuel, we'll see the installment of Saul as the first king, and then David and Solomon, and on down the line. But until we get there, we have Joshua, who's the last great ruler, great leader of Israel. Moses before him, then Joshua, and now we've got a succession of judges up until the installment of the first king. And it's historical, and it's interesting because of the history, and the stories are interesting and compelling. But there's a powerful fact that we will see as we read through and study this book. And here it is, we need a king. We need a king. The theme verse of the book of Judges is Judges chapter 17, verse 6. This is the one around which the entire book revolves. This is the point of the book. And I'll read it to you, Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That being the case, you're going to see some horrific things in this book. You're going to see some sin on these pages that will make the massacre at Virginia Tech this last week pale by comparison. You will see men make decisions, even in their rule, that is almost unconscionable. And you'll wonder, how in the world did it make its way into Scripture? You're going to see a man do something that is so shocking... That it's only, it only is more shocking to recognize that somehow God approves of what he does. And I'm not going to tell you what that is until we get there. It is one of the most exciting books in the Bible. Because it is full of these incredible stories. But it's also a time of incredible apostasy in Israel. Apostasy, not apostrophe. Apostasy. That is a falling away. A, a rebellion against And in this apostasy, for all of Joshua's encouragement and entreaties, once the generation of Joshua and the elders who were with him dies off, passes on, the people begin to compromise and calamity sets in. We're going to, toward the end tonight, talk about the cycle of judgment. Because over and over, these people get into this cycle that just repeats itself again and again, and it always starts with compromise. Which should unnerve us a little bit when we look at our current country right now compromise. But we'll get there. If the theme of the book of Joshua is conquest by faith, the theme of Judges is compromise to failure. Conquest by faith. Joshua was exciting. What a great book, wasn't it? To move through there. The truths found within. Amazing. Fantastic. Encouraging. And we were called on to take possession of the promises of God. Grow in our faith. But we come into Judges and they're not growing in their faith. They are growing, in fact, in their failure. Do you ever wonder why people who have taken possession of God's promises and faith, who have crossed the Jordan River by the Spirit of God, who have tasted and received the fruit of the goodness of God, why people like that fall into apostasy, Why such people seem to walk away from all they profess to believe? Have you seen it? Have you known someone in your life like that? 
you know, someone who, who you just knew was a believer. They, they follow Christ. They love the Lord. You may have watched them do this for years and then suddenly something happens and they crash and burn. They fall away. They rebel. It's all lost. And if you've ever wondered about that, we need to understand that while we enter into or take possession of God's promises by faith, we experience and grow in the Lord by faithfulness. Faith begins the journey. It's faithfulness that keeps us on the journey. And when we let up, when we stop, when we back away, when we take a break, that's when we are at risk. When we compromise. The Lord says, I want you to be faithful. Be faithful, consistent, constant. One person called it a long obedience in the same direction. I like that phrase. It's one of my favorites. A long obedience in the same direction. When I get tired, the Lord says to me, Rick, just keep doing what you're doing. Just keep going. Don't stop. Remain faithful. And Psalm 37 verse 3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. And I believe that's where we're at. We've talked about taking possession. We know the Lord wants us to take possession. We know it's our faith that gets us there. But now the Lord, I believe, would say to you, would say to me, Cultivate faithfulness. Cultivate faithfulness. How do we do that? Well, we're going to see. Joshua told the people in Joshua 23 verses 6 through 11, he said, Man, be firm. Keep the word. Cling to the Lord. Love the Lord. And you will cultivate faithfulness. That's, that's key right there. Clinging to the Lord. Keeping His word. Being firm. Loving the Lord your God. Now, the book of Judges will detail roughly 400 years. From Joshua, again, through Samson, who's the last of the judges prior to Samuel coming on the scene. Samuel the prophet... You may have heard of him. You may recall something to do with Samuel. He's the one who will eventually anoint David. Samuel is actually the last of the judges and the first of the new run of prophets in Israel. But there's about a 400 year uh, span of time in this book, beginning with the death of Joshua and again the rule of the elders, which covers about 30 to 50 years after Joshua dies. And then Israel will enter into one of the darkest periods in their biblical history. And then finally that will lead them into the time of the judges. And it all happens within this book. A quick overview of the book will reveal that it doesn't necessarily follow a chronological pattern. A big chunk of it does, but you can break it into three sections. Section number one, which is chapter one through the very beginning of chapter three, is the times of the elders. This will review a bit and detail, and we'll look at this tonight, the conquest of Israel, the unfinished conquest. So they go in, they take the land, but God leaves them some areas, some pockets of resistance that they need to clear out, and they don't. We'll see that tonight. Chapter 3, right about verse 5 through chapter 16, is the chronological timing of the judges. The cycle of judgment. The cycle of judgment. So we have the conquest at the very beginning, which we see remains unfinished. Then we enter into this cycle of judgment, where again, over and over, you will see this repeated pattern with Israel that we'll talk about in a minute. The cycle of judgment. Then the book ends, chapter 17 through 21, with what I would call the appendix, because it talks about the times in between. That is the times in between Joshua and the judges. The writer of this book, probably Samuel, will jump back and in three, four chapters there, he will talk about the crisis and the calamity that Israel was in. The bad decisions, the things that they were doing, the abject rebellion, the falling away, the apostasy. So those are the three sections. 
times of the elders at the beginning, times of the judges in the middle, and then an appendix at the end, the times in between the two. Now on the upside, in spite of this long period of moral lapse and failure between Joshua and the coming of the prophet Samuel, Judges is also one of the most exciting books in the Bible because it's a book of heroes. A lot of the heroes of faith that we talk about from time to time are right in these pages. They are the judges. People like Ehud and Deborah and Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. In all, there are 12 men and one woman who the gracious God will raise up to deliver Israel from their enemies and their self-inflicted crises. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16 tells us, Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Now, when you think of judges, don't think long black robes. Don't think Supreme Court and gavels and, and court cases. You might want to think more in terms of muscle and power and capes. Maybe a big S. Samson, you know. Because these judges are in fact heroes. They're the super people of the day. Supermen, superwoman, Deborah, who is amazing in her own right. The word judges is sofatim, and it means literally one who not just administers justice, but one who defends and delivers. One who stands up. One who the Lord calls up to fight for the people. To be just for the people. Those are the judges. It's the age of the heroes of Israel. And these judges are military heroes and they're moral heroes, mostly. And while the people waffle back and forth between faith and failure, the Lord keeps raising them up to draw the people back into faithfulness. Now the book will open tonight with two introductions. Judges chapter 1 is a segue between Joshua and the judges. And Judges chapter 2 actually introduces the era of the judges. With that background, let's take a look. Judges chapter 1 and verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now this is interesting to me, because you would think by now they know the answer to this question. Who's going to fight for us? Joshua's dead now. Who's going to go up for us? Seems to me it was always the same person before. Not Joshua, but the Lord. And yet they're asking again, who's going to fight for us now that Joshua is dead? And it is so typical of humanity. We tend to look to the man and not to the Lord. Even though the Lord is the only one who's empowering the man or the woman in Deborah's case. We're constantly drawn back to the flesh. And yet it's the Lord. The Lord is the one who goes up. The Lord is the deliverer. Psalm 24, 7, one of my favorite psalms, we sing this. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, ancient doors, that the King may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord. I told you a few weeks back, Hayden and I were in the car together driving, and he was memorizing this verse for school. You guys remember this? And I was getting him to say this night, and I'd say, Who is the King of Glory? And Hayden would go, The Lord! And it was great. You know, shouting in the car, going down this, the road there, The Lord! King of Glory! The Lord of Hosts! And we're always looking for a human component. We're all, well, that's interesting. Well, this isn't even on anyway. Do you guys need this on? Can you hear me fine? Okay. <laughs> we'll just leave that off. So the Lord is the one. 
We look for the human and he's calling us back to himself time and time again. And even here, the people at the very beginning are asking for someone to go up. Who's going to go up first? So the Lord says, all right, meeting them where they're at, he says, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted me that we may fight against the Canaanites and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted you so Simeon went with him Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek now there are still pockets of problems here in the land still trouble enemies that need to be cleared out of the land and by the way the same is true for us when you have given your life to the Lord, when you have crossed that Jordan River, receiving of the Spirit, and you're empowered by Him, there are still pockets of resistance. Are there not? Aren't there still flesh calls in our lives? Things that we're struggling with, things that we would, we would do better just to fight and, and destroy and get rid of? Jesus conquered our sin at Calvary, providing us the possession of the promise of salvation. But there's still rebellion that needs cleaning out. And gang, there will be rebellion that needs cleaning out our entire lives until we die or He calls us home. That's life. That's what it's about. Cleaning that out. The cleaning process, the purification, sanctification process of the Lord. This is what He's calling us through in our lives. Now, listen, I'm not saying Jesus' atonement wasn't sufficient. It was completely sufficient. In the cross, on the cross, by His death, He did everything that was possibly needed to save me, to save you. I can't add to it. I can't can't take away from it. But as long as I'm in the flesh, corruptible flesh will rail against my incorruptible spirit. Pockets of resistance. And so that's what we see even in the promised land here. Tribes still need clearing out. Uh, Judah tells Simeon, hey, come on and let's do this together. Now that makes sense in a couple of ways. Relationally it makes sense. Judah and Simeon are brothers. And I go, well, duh, they're all the twelve sons of Jacob, right? Sons of Israel. Yeah, but Judah and Simeon were blood brothers completely. They weren't half brothers. They both shared the same father, Jacob, and the same mother, Leah. So Judah and Simeon come directly from the same line, the same family line, same mother, same father. But they also geographically are closely connected. Remember when the land was allotted, Judah was given this big massive portion of the land that goes all the way down to the Negev. And in the middle of that is Simeon. So it makes sense for Judah to say, let's fight together for the land allotted to us. You fight with us as we push in and then ultimately we're going to get to the center of the land, which is Simeon's area, and we'll keep fighting together. and We will together drive the people out of this area. But it's interesting to me also, a couple other things here, why Judah would go first. If you think back in our biblical history, in the Exodus itself, Judah was always the lead tribe out. The Lord designed that as the tribes would break camp and they'd follow the, the cloud by day, the fire by night, when they'd you know, break all their tents down and start heading out, Judah always went first. Judah always went first into battle. And later, the ruling tribe of Israel would be Judah, with King David, King Solomon, and later, wonderfully, King Jesus. But remember this... Judah also means praise. And the praise always leads the way. Praise goes first. The reason we just sang the thwart song is because there's something about worship that engages us like nothing else can. Mexican music can do it too. 
not exactly like worship music, but I was sitting, we were in the restaurant the other day, Wes and I, and, and my wife, and, and Cheryl's mom were sitting there having lunch after staff meeting, and, and the Mexican music's playing, it's Esteban's down there in Anacortes, and I can't sit still, and it's really frustrating. Because, you know, it's a da 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 and I'm bouncing around, you know, like this, and I'm trying to talk, but I just, I can't keep, because that's what the Mexican, you know, it just does that, the music gets to you. And the seats in Esteban, by the way, are really bouncy. So if you're moving to the music, you're really moving. I mean, you're all over the place. I'm just going to tuck that in there. And, and I, I was thinking about that, but there's some, I don't think there's such a thing as a tragic Mexican love song. I don't see how it's possible. Oh, my wife! My wife just got killed yesterday, and I'm really, really, really sad. I mean, you can't. How it wouldn't work. Every Mexican song I've ever heard in a restaurant like that is happy. These must be the happiest people in the world. Well, praise music isn't exactly like that. It's it's far deeper. At a spirit level, there's something that happens to our lives when we worship the Lord. Right, Aaron? It impacts us in such a way that it doesn't matter what else is going on, what else has happened, if we will stop and worship, if we'll allow praise to lead the way, if we'll allow Judah to go first, it changes our perspective. It reminds us that the Lord does lead out, that it truly is about Him, that He does have the power. Psalm 146, verse 8, The Lord opens up the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. Some of you may have come in tonight, bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Good news, that's you. And not because of what you've done. You are the righteous because of what He has done. Because of His blood poured out for you and for me on the cross. We are the righteous. And the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. But He thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Judah goes first. Praise leads the way. And if you're ever having a struggle... If you're in a hard spot, a tough position, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because praise leads the way. Now back in our text, again, Judah invites Simeon. They go and they fight together and something interesting happens. Verse 5 says, they found Adonai Bezek, or Bezek. And that literally means Lord of the Fire. Or Lord of Lightning. This is the title this guy gave himself. They found him in Bethzek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Uh, yeah, verse 6. But Adonai Bethzek fled. And they pursued him and they caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. It was a total conquering of Adonai Bezek. You can call it the agony of defeat. <laughs> Ebert and Roper would uh, have to rate this battle no thumbs up. (laughs) No thumbs at all. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes, and it tells us, verse 7, that Adonai Bezek said 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me. And so they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. This is actually the idea behind the de-thumbing and de-toeing. It sounds strange to us, maybe a little barbaric, but what it was was a signal that this king is finished. Because the king was, especially in that day, a military leader. David was a military leader. You read this in 2 Samuel, but in the springtime was when all the kings went out to war. The kings didn't sit back in the castle. Most often they went out and they fought and they led the armies out. Well, if you didn't have thumbs, you'd have trouble hanging on to your sword. 
without the thumbs. Without the toes, you would not have sure footing in battle. And so taking off the, the big toe and the thumb leaves you useless in battle and therefore useless as a king. You can't wield the sword and you lose your footing. And so it's interesting that this dethumbification <laughs> it's not new to Israel. Adonai Bezek has done it to 70 kings that he had conquered before. That was his pattern. He would go and conquer, cut off the thumbs and toes, and make them servants in his own castle. Israel learned this from Adonai Bezek. Kind of like scalping. You know, if you know historically, the Native Americans were not the ones who originated scalping. It was the armed forces of the United States of America who were scalping the Indians. And so doing, they recognized this and said, oh, well, this is how our enemy acts. We'll do the same thing. And so they did it in return. Well, this is what's happening. Israel is learning something from its neighbors already. Not necessarily a good thing. But it's interesting to me that Adonai Bezek, he, he recognizes something that is a biblical principle. He says, as, as I have done, so God has repaid me. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will reap. More modernly, what goes around comes around. Don't dish it out if you can't take it. What you do will come back around to you. And Adonai Bezek, before he dies, recognizes this, that he gets paid back for exactly what he did to 70 kings before him. Verse 8 going on says, The sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And I love that because that's how to set a city on fire with the edge of the sword. You want to set this area on fire, it will happen by the edge of the sword. It will happen through the teaching of the Word, by keeping the Word, by leading people into the Word of God. There is power in this sword, and the sword sets cities on fire. But verse 9 going on says, Afterward, the sons of Judah, they went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, and in the Negev, and in the lowland. So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba, and they struck Sheshai, and Ahiman, and Talmai, and we've heard some of this before. In fact, this part of the introduction, it parallels what we've already studied regarding a certain man that we affectionately refer to as Mad Dog Caleb. This is what Caleb did. Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai, you may recall. These are the three sons of Anak that Caleb wiped out. We studied this in Joshua chapter 15. Back in verse 14 of that chapter, it says, Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, at least these three names, these children of Anak, and then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir, and now the name of Debir for you formerly was Kiriath-Sephir. Verse 11 here in Judges, paralleling, then he went from there, or they, they went from there, against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir for, formerly was Kiriath-Sephir. Those of you who are curious what that name means, it's simply the city of the books. So this is probably the seat of learning in the uh, Canaanite area, city of the books. Verse 12, Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath Sephir and captures it, I will even give him my daughter Aksa for a wife. Verse 13 tells us Othniel, the son of Canaz. Othniel will be our first judge. Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, so he gave him his daughter Aksa for a wife, and it came about when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. 
Then she alighted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. The Negev is that desert area in Jerusalem, in Israel, in southern Israel. Hot, deserty, dry. She says, you've given me this land. Now give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Let me remind you of what we saw when we studied this before. Because we saw this in the book of Joshua, chapter 15 that he gave her the upper and the lower springs. You may remember we looked at Joshua as a type of Jesus. Throughout the study of Joshua, he typifies Jesus time and time again. Joshua, Yeshua. But we also saw that Caleb, in his own right, typifies the work of the Holy Spirit. Caleb comes alongside Joshua. He doesn't claim any glory for himself. He just fights with and for and supports Joshua in the same way the Holy Spirit does in our lives. But interestingly, in this story, we have Joshua who typifies Jesus, Caleb who typifies the Holy Spirit, and Oxa. Oxa is the bride. The bride. And when you hear the bride, I don't know about you, but I tend to think about the church. Is there a parallel here? Well, what does the bride do? The bride asks for the double blessing. The bride's been given possession of the land. She has the the negative. She is now asking for more. She's coming to her father and she's saying, Give me not only the lower springs, but the upper springs as well. Both springs of water. Gang, we are the bride. Who the father has promised to give us both the lower and the upper springs, along with our possession. He's promised to give us the early rains as talked about in scripture, and the latter rains that come later in the year in Israel. The indwelling of the Spirit of Christ, which comes through faith when we are baptized into Jesus, Peter says, Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You receive the indwelling of the Spirit early on in your faith life. Ask and you will receive the Spirit. But he not only gives the early rains, but the latter rains. Not only the lower springs, but the upper springs, indicating, gang, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that empowers us for lives of service. Jesus says in Luke 11:13, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Jesus said to His apostles in Acts chapter 1, Go wait in Jerusalem and you will receive power when My Spirit comes upon you. And they had already received the Holy Spirit. Back in John chapter 20, He breathed on them and said, Peace be with you. And they received the Spirit at that time. But this was more. This was an empowerment for ministry that He promised to give them. And we talked about that in previous studies and looked at that. But I just want to say tonight, pause and say, if you haven't asked the Father for the double blessing, ask Him. How do I receive the Holy Spirit? How, how do I receive that empowering for ministry? I'd love to have a life of service for the Lord. I'd like to be a better witness. I don't know how to do this. Is there, are there some hoops I need to jump through? Is there a certain process? Are there certain steps I need to take to, to prove myself to the Spirit? No. Ask. Ask Him. Well, ask Him what? Lord, I'd like to be empowered by Your Spirit. I mean, it's really that simple. Even if you're not sure. Well, I think maybe I was at camp one time. It was a real emotional experience. But I'm not sure. Was I? Did it happen? Was it? Ask Him. You think it offends the Father to be asked again and again, Lord, can I have a fresh empowerment of Your Spirit? 
for ministry today, for ministry this week, will you flow into my life? Will you work in me? Will you overflow me? Ask Him. The bride asks and the springs are given to her and it's a great picture. Well, going on, verse 16. Then the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, they went up from the city of Palms, which by the way is Jericho, with the sons of Judah, to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad, and they went and lived with the people. And then Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. We've seen that word before. It means devoted to destruction. Hormah, or the devoted things. Verse 18, Judah took Gaza with its territory, same Gaza as today, the Gaza Strip, that right now is ruled and overrun by Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. All that is down there in southern Israel. Verse 19, Now the Lord was with Judah and they took possession of the hill country. Yay! But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Now listen to this. Judah was successful in the mountains. In the hill country, they were able to fight and take possession and drive out their enemies. But they were defeated in the valley. Successful, empowered on the mountain, defeated in the valley. Why? Because in the valley they had eye trouble. They could see just fine when they were on the mountain. They could see the Lord. They were trusting the Father when they were on the mountain. But in the valley, their eyes were focused on the iron chariots of the enemy and the battle became intense. It's like Peter walking on the water. Man, when his eyes were on Jesus, no problem. When his eyes were on the waves, big problem. And the same it is for Israel. They're here. They can fight on the mountain. they got no problem. There's no chariots to distract. But when they see those iron chariots in the valley, it's too much for them. They focus on the chariots and they fall apart and they cannot take the valley. Well, Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some boast in chariots and some in horses. We will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Let, Let them have their chariots. Did God ever say to the people of Israel as they came into the land, listen, I'm going to be with you, but those chariots are kind of tough. I'll do my best, but they're made of iron. You know, we will trust in the Lord. Psalm 68, verse 17. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. It doesn't matter how many chariots the enemy has, God's got more. God's got greater power. You've heard the phrase, Satan is mighty, God is almighty. And whatever comes against you, whatever comes against me in our lives, it doesn't matter how how horrific it might be, how raging, how difficult, how seemingly seemingly insurmountable, God is always bigger. I, I got a sin problem, I can't let go of. You know, when we were talking on Sunday morning with the men, and talk about the issue that some of us guys, I'll just say all of us guys, have stuff back here that we're just not sure we can repent of because, man, to bring that to light and to be laid open before the Lord, that's tough stuff. Hey, the Lord's bigger. The Lord's bigger. You may have a sin problem in your life right now that has you in such a grip, a stranglehold, you have no idea how to break free from it. Let me just tell you, God is bigger than that iron chariot. Amen. And the enemy's going to try and ride it all over your life, but God's chariots are myriads upon myriads. I love this story. 2 Kings chapter 6 tells us that, that wonderful story of Elisha and his little servant Gehazi. And Gehazi walks out and, and he's, they're fighting against the Arameans and, and Elisha keeps telling the king of Israel where the Arameans are camping out. And so the king of Israel keeps you know, surprise attacking and keeps avoiding them. 
And so the king of Aram gets really angry and says, that's it, take out that prophet. So in the night, they surround Elisha's home with iron chariots, the chariots of the Arameans. And it tells us in 2 Kings 6.15 that when the attendant of the man, this is Gehazi, his little servant, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. You're going to see him freaking out and running right back into the house. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And so Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now Gehazi had heard Elisha use language like this before, but I can't help but see him standing there in the house with Elisha going, (laughs) More are with us? Man, I know you're a man of God, but you didn't see the chariots. We're surrounded by an army. How can you say more are with us than more are with them? Listen to what he did. Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Chariots of the army of the Arameans, chariots of fire surrounding them. And Gehazi got it. Oh, yes, we're all right. God's always got more chariots. And his chariots of fire can always, will always win out in a battle. So stop looking at the iron chariots. Start looking to the Lord. That's the kind of vision that faith calls us to. A vision where we can see what God's doing, not what the enemy's doing. Who cares what the enemy's doing? Who cares how he's trying to undermine you? Who cares what's being said about you in the world? Or what's being done against you? Big deal. Chariots of God are always greater. And that's why I believe Paul writes in Ephesians 1.18. He says, I pray, like Elisha before him, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, we sing. Open the eyes of my heart so I can see what you're doing and not give a rip as to what the enemy is doing. So take heart. When you're down in the valley, the Lord rides well there. Going on, verse 20. It says, Then they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. Back there in verse 10, those three sons, he drove them out. Verse 21, But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. I'll make a comment about that later, but I will say this. Jerusalem, in verse 8, we saw that Judah captured Jerusalem. Judah actually drove out the enemies from Jerusalem, but then they didn't hold it. They went on down south to continue their battle. Jerusalem was not Judah's to hold. It was Benjamin's to hold because Jerusalem is in Benjamin's territory. So Judah drives them out. All Benjamin had to do was flow into the city and hold it, but they were unable to do it. And because of that, it will be another 400 years until David finally comes and conquers Jerusalem and it becomes the capital of Israel. Now in verse 22, likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. But the spies saw a man coming out of the city. And they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city and we will treat you kindly. Apparently Bethel or Luz at the time had a, had a difficult way in. 
and they couldn't really find the entrance. And they, were, they wanted to attack the city, but the spies couldn't figure out how do we get in there. I don't know what that entrance was, but it was difficult to find. And so they saw a guy coming out and grabbed him. Show us how to get in, they asked him. We'll treat you kindly. So verse 25, he showed them the entrance to the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go free. Watch what he does, verse 26. The man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. This little guy helps out the tribes of Joseph. He helps them to take and destroy Luz, and then he goes off and builds new Luz. So Luz is wiped out. It's now Bethel, house of God. But he goes over and he builds Luz all over again. And this is what happens when we allow sin to go unchecked in our lives. When we make friends or wink the eye at sin. When we fool ourselves into thinking, I can handle certain sins in my life. I can deal with it. And all we do is we allow it to regroup somewhere else in our lives. To replant the same old thing. And it can be years And we think it's gone. We think I've dealt with it. So we venture into that territory and boom, there it is. And it attacks us when we least expect it. Proverbs 26.11 says, Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. I love the Bible. (laughs) I just love pictures like this because it's so graphic. <laughs> like a dog returning to his home. Mm, oh, no, that was, that's really good. That's actually about, about as good as it was the first time. I like the second. Oh, I have it a third time. Maybe I can bring it up again. Mm, this is what dogs do. And this is the same thing the Bible says we do foolishly when we return to old sin that should have been dealt with. And if you have a certain area of sin in your life, let me encourage you to kill it dead. Wipe it out. Don't toy with it. Don't just push it off into another area of your life where you can deal with it later. Or else it will crop up again. Paul said in Romans 6 verse 8, he says, If we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, listen, Paul says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, how do I do that practically? It's very simple, actually. Replace sin with righteousness. Replace your sin with righteousness. Let me give you some real simple ones. And I know there are probably more devious and secret things in all of our lives that, that we could figure out on our own. But let me give you an example. If it's alcoholism. Let's say you struggle with alcoholism. A serious amount of drinking in your life. And now you've become a Christian. You've given your life to the Lord. There's great change. Don't think that you can just have the one beer every now and then. Because if you struggle with it before, guess what? It's going to come back again. It'll happen again. So the Bible says, Paul says, Ephesians 5.18, Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So instead of grabbing for the beer, how about spending five minutes in prayer? Oh, Rick, that sounds so unmanly. Kneel down when I could be tossing back? Dude, if it's a problem for you, it's going to be Luz. And you're going to find yourself in the region of the Hittites, and you're going to see a whole city there that you didn't even know was there. If it's pornography, the Bible says instead of looking at that, Hebrews 12, to fix your eyes on Jesus. 
You get that, that urge to, to go to a certain website or, or, or check something out on the internet. Stop and open your Bible and read and consider the Lord or spend some time in prayer. If it's gossip, here's a good one. If it's gossip that you've struggled with and you know in your life you've hurt some people because of the gossip that you have spread and the slander that you have spoken, how about this? Speak about others as much as you want but only to the Lord. See, he can handle that. He's the only one we can gossip to, and and it's okay. Because he's not going to spread it around. Lord, Les is just driving me nuts this week. He keeps calling, and he wants to pray, and i got things to do. Father, I just... Leslie, what am I going to do with her? Lord... And between the Father and I, it's amazing because he just kind of works it out, doesn't he? He just kind of says, Rick, how about you, you little fool? Let's talk about you. I mean, he always brings it back to me. I don't know why he always has to bring it back to me. But if that's your issue, what I'm saying is take whatever the sin area is, and you know what it is, and I don't even have to drum it up for you tonight. You know what your struggle is or what your struggle used to be. Listen, kill it dead by replacing it with righteousness. That, by the way, is the kind of replacement theology I can accept. Replacing sin with righteousness. Sin behavior with holy behavior. And retraining, and it is a part of the sanctification in our lives, retraining ourselves to say, I'm not going to ever touch that again. Instead, I'm grabbing for this. I am reaching out for the Lord and what He is about. It's replacing the old with the new, replacing the dead with the living, the unholy with the righteousness. And by the way, this is exactly what Israel did not do. Verse 27, reading on. In fact, the rest of this chapter is the same thing, just different tribes doing the same thing. Manasseh did not take possession of Bethshan and its villages. You can see Bethshan. It's, it's a really cool archaeological dig in Israel. If you go, October 2008, sign up. We'll get that out to you. <laughs> Manasseh did not take possession of Bethshan and its villages, or Teanach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. You can see Megiddo, by the way, the, not just the valley of, but the mountain of and the city that used to be there, ancient Megiddo. So the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. Why? Because the uh, tribe of Manasseh they didn't push them out. It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Hey, we can make some money off these guys. I mean, this is a workforce for us. Why would we drive them out when we can put them to forced labor and get some benefit, some some, uh, gain from them? Ephraim, same thing, verse 29. They did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Getzer. So the Canaanites living in Getzer, uh, they they lived among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subjected to forced labor. Oh, well, hey, we got them under our thumb. We got control. It's okay that they live in the land. We have power over them, right? That's, that's okay. That's what they're thinking. Asher, verse 31, did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Elab, or Akzib, or Helba, or Afik, or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Bethana. 
or but they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anna became forced labor for them. Same thing, the Amorites. They drew, they actually forced the sons of Dan into the hill country. So they did not allow them to come down into the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Harris and Aijalon and in Shealbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. Forced labor is another word for taxation. It's another word for slavery. So now Israel is doing to the inhabitants of the land exactly what happened to them back in Egypt. And the problem is God said very clearly, unequivocally, drive them out. Don't leave a single man, woman, child, or beast living. You take them out of the land. Why, Lord? Because the land is sick with them. Because their sin, their rebellion is beyond horrendous. Because they are like a rabid dog. And what do you do with a rabid dog? You kill it. Because it will just pass on the disease. Israel didn't listen. It tells us, verse 36, The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. God said, I want you to wipe out the inhabitants of the land, and they refused to do it. And Jesus gets fed up. What do you mean Jesus gets fed up? Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. As for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you. But they will be as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. And when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And so they named that place Volchim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. Jesus got fed up, so Jesus now shows up. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying this angel of the Lord is Jesus? Absolutely. That's what I believe. I'm convinced of it that anytime you see this phrase angel of the Lord in the, in the Old Testament it literally is translated the messenger of the Lord and I believe we're seeing as we've already seen before and we'll see again a Christophany a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ well, well that, that's blasphemy how can you say that well I can say it very easily because the angel of the Lord in verse 1 begins speaking and he says I brought you up out of the land of Egypt now tell me which angel of the Lord brought the people up out of the land of Egypt He says, I have sworn to your fathers, I will never break my covenant. But you have not obeyed me. The people of Israel were never called to obey an angel. They were only called to obey the Lord. And so this messenger of the Lord, this word of the Lord, if you will, is the pre-incarnate Christ who John tells us eventually is the word made flesh who dwells among us. We've got to get away from this Old Testament, New Testament separation mentality. What happened there was for then and what happens here is for now and, and, and on after. It's, it's one word, gang. And if Jesus can show up born of a virgin as a baby, you better believe he showed up and can show, show up in previous times. There is no limitation to the Son of God, to God in the flesh. So he shows up and he appears with a serious warning and the people begin to weep. That's what Bochim means, those who weep. Uh, some have pronounced this not Bochim, but Bacham, because that's exactly what they did. They botched it. You can use that to kind of remember what's going on here. They botch them. And so there at Bochim, they, they begin to weep. But you need to understand, though they weep, 
And though they sacrifice there at Bohim, it is not a godly sorrow, it is not a repentance. They are not repenting. They're just caught. They're just guilty. They're just feeling bad. Romans 2.4, Paul says, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And I believe we're seeing here at Bochim the sorrow of the world. They're weeping. They feel bad. They're guilt-ridden. But there's no repentance. They weep and they sacrifice, but we see no heart change. If they repented, they would turn and they would begin following the Lord. If they don't turn, they don't repent. They just sacrifice, they weep, they move on. And so we will as well. Verse 6. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Wait, I thought Joshua died back there in the first couple of verses. This is introduction stuff. Okay, so he's jumping back now and he's saying that when Joshua died, he says, verse 7, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of of his inheritance, that is Timnath-Heres or Timnath-Sarah, it's the same uh, same place, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and here's where it starts to go dark. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. They didn't know. A whole generation that grew up not having really seen the parting of the Red Sea, not having seen the water poured out of the rock, not having seen the protection and the leading of the Lord and the power of the Lord, they hadn't seen, and so they don't believe. What is it that Jesus said? Blessed are those who see and have not who believe and have not seen. That's where the real blessing is. And so it tells us that they didn't have the same relationship with their fathers as Joshua and the elders did. They didn't have the same relationship with their father, the Lord. So verse 11 going on, The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The Baals. In Hebrew, that's the Baalim. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them thus they provoked the Lord to anger verse 13 they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth the same gods that we in our culture in our country continue to serve today the Baalim and the Ashtaroth you might say now why, why does it say the Baals plural because Baal represented pretty much any deity they wanted They just attach an end name. Baal meant Lord, and so they would just attach a name like Baal Herman, the Lord of Destruction. Or Baal Gad, Lord of Fortune. Baal Perazim, Lord of the Breaks. Or I like this one, Baal Peor, Lord of the Gap. I didn't know they had their own Lord. We have a Gap outlet. (laughs) Would there be like a Lord of the Gap outlet? I don't know, like Baal Pure outlet or something. I don't know. And Baal's above. 
Beelzebub Lord of the Flies these are all names of the Baals and the people would just take whatever god they wanted and they would attach Baal to it Lord of the Sky Lord of this Lord Baal that and they would just Baal fill in the blank and they began to chase after them and it is mind boggling that this people who are brought back to the land and given a land that they didn't cultivate and homes that they didn't build and cities that they didn't build and and vineyards and olive trees that they didn't plant all of this given to them by the Lord God and they chased other gods Baal was the god of storms the god of power rain, lightning, thunder you may recall that Elijah on Mount Carmel fought against the prophets of Baal and what did he do? He called for fire from heaven. And those believers in Baal, those 400 prophets of Baal, they thought, oh yeah, fire, that's Baal's thing. And Elijah proved them wrong. Baal had no authority, no power. Baal didn't really exist at all. Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth is the many-breasted goddess of fertility and sensuality. I, I've seen, I don't know if you've seen like in some of the ancient books, uh, pictures of statues to Ashtaroth. It's really actually pretty disgusting. Yeah. You know, if you ask me. I, I think I'm not going to go there. Ashtaroth. Anyway, <clears throat> goddess of fertility and sensuality. Baal, the god of storms, the god of power. By the way, Ashtaroth is also represented by a, some different names you may be familiar with. Astarte. The Greek name for Ashtaroth, Aphrodite. The Roman name for Ashtaroth, Venus. The Babylonian name, Ishtar, where we get, of course, our word Easter. Ishtar, Easter. And that's the connection, the, uh, the fertility god, goddess, Easter, the, the bunny rabbits that are very fertile, the eggs representing that fertility that goes all the way to, back to Ashtaroth. And by the way, for those of you who like to study these things, the worship of this goddess, this Ashtaroth, runs all the way back to the earliest of Babylonian paganism to a woman whose name was Semiramis, who is the wife of Nimrod, who is the builder of a place called Babel. Remember Genesis chapter 10, chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Paganism, worship of false gods, began and found its foothold there. And Semiramis became that goddess, or, or named herself that, was the high priest's wife. And through that, this, this whole issue of this female goddess of fertility and sensuality grew out of this legend from this founder of Babel and his wife. If you want to find out more about that, I encourage you to pick up the CDs that we have in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 17. We go in depth and we look at that and talk about those things and it's fascinating stuff. But I said that these gods, the Baals and the Ashtaroth, we still worship today and we do. The god of power and fortune. The goddess of sensuality from Wall Street to MTV. You see it all over the place. We were in a mall in Tel Aviv in Israel and I was absolutely stunned and how far Israel has come in the modern world. We sat in this main section having a, sup, a cup of coffee and all the way around this were, were ads, big, huge, probably 10 feet by, oh, I don't know, maybe five, five foot, these posters hanging down around. It's this, it was this uh, two-story mall and these posters all around us and there were massive shoe ads and they basically were, each one, two women wearing different kinds of shoes but the two women in sensual poses together. I, mean, I felt like we were surrounded. I thought we were at a lesbian convention there in Tel Aviv is what it, it looked like to me. Ashtaroth is still represented well in Israel and all over the world today. 
the goddess of sensuality. Baal, the god of power. And it tells us in verse 14 that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. Oh, wait a minute. God can do evil? Well, a simple non-theological answer to that question is God can do pretty much whatever He wants to do. Okay? But the inference here that the hand of the Lord was against them for evil is was against them for bad. To allow them to fall to their own choices. To allow their own sin to overtake them. It's exactly what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 where it says the Lord gave them up to their sensuality. He finally said, enough, enough. Okay, if you want to burn men, Romans chapter 1, if men want to burn with lust for other men and women want to burn with lust for other women, God finally says, I'm going to give you up to that and I'm going to let you experience that evil that you are choosing. That's what it's saying here. The hand of the Lord was against them for evil. Evil happened to them. As the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so they were severely distressed. Are you distressed tonight? If you come into this place distressed in your life, it might be that God cares far too much about you and about me to allow us to continue to serve other gods. And so what He does is He gives us over to those gods. What He does to get our attention, if we are serving some kind of sin or some kind of desire in our life, God says, all right, you want that? Have at it. And He allows us to experience the very evil that we would choose so that we would come to that place of distress. Why would he do that? Because it's in distress that I cry out to the Lord. It's in distress that I say, God, I can't do this anymore. Lord, help me. I'm surrounded all about. I have no strength left. Lord, please come and rescue me. Send me a deliverer. And that's where the judges are. They're deliverers. And Israel gets to this place of distress, and it tells us in verse 16, the Lord raised up judges, Sophatim, he raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Now I told you there's a cycle of judgment in the book of Judges and this is it. It begins with compromise. Now we're going to just draw this. You're taking notes. Draw this in a circle. At the top of the circle, compromise. Compromise or apostasy. The people say, we love the Lord, we follow the Lord, but we want a little more power. We want Baal. We need a little more sensuality. Not, not a lot of sensuality. Just We just want life to be a little more sexy than it is right now. So let's, let's compromise a bit. And apostasy happens. Compromise is first. That leads to the chasing after other gods. Chasing after other gods. When the Lord sees the people chasing after other gods, He allows them to go right into the next, the next part of the cycle of judgment, crushed by their enemies. Crushed by their enemies. Then the people get to that place where they are in distress and they cry out to the Lord. These are all going to start with C. That makes it a little easier for you. So compromise to chasing after other gods, to being crushed by their enemies, to crying out to the Lord. And what happens next is always what happens next with the Lord. And it's wonderful. Compassion. Compassion and deliverance. He hears the cry of His people. He hears us, gang, when we're in distress. Even if the distress was brought on by our own sin. 
Even if the distress was self-imposed, I made the stupid mistake, I blew it, I am completely guilty, and I cry out to the Lord, I can't take this anymore, and He's there, our compassionate grace upon grace, loving God, compassionate deliverer. And so then the people come back to the Lord. They come back. And things are good for a time under one of the judges until they compromise. And the whole cycle goes round and round again. Compromise, chasing other gods, crushed by enemies, crying out to the Lord, compassion and deliverance, coming back to the Lord, everything's great, and then compromise happens again. And around and around and around it goes. Verse 16, through the end of the chapter, it tells us, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. They played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Or the Lord was, sorry, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died, they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So, cycle of judgment, the anger of the Lord burns against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not and so verse 23 the Lord allowed those nations to remain not driving them out quickly and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua the pattern falls again and again compromise chasing after other guards crushed by the enemy crying out to the Lord compassionate deliverance coming back to the Lord and compromise and with every single judge you will see this happen over and over through this book it rolls on the cycle is repeated across 350 years of Israel's history But gang, I invite you to consider modern Israel's past 60 years. How have they been doing? How has life been in the land of Israel? In 2007, we see Israel distressed on all sides. Hezbollah and Syria in the north. Iran and the Arab neighbors there in the east. Hamas and the Palestinian Authority in the south. And in the center of it all is Jerusalem, that cup which brings about reeling Zechariah talked about. Even today, until the people repent, until they return to God, the same people who were in the land then are in the land now. They have never been driven out. And the people are still struggling and still fighting and still in distress. Israel needs a new judge. Israel needs a hero. Psalm 2, we began with Psalm 2, let me finish that Psalm. Psalm 2 verse 10 says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The first time Jesus came, 
He came as the deliverer. The judge who delivers, like an Ehud, or like a Samson, he came to deliver the people. John 3.17 says, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus came, the deliverer, but the next time He comes, it will be to judge. In every sense of the word, Revelation 19.11, John says, I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's the judge that Israel needs, and that's the hero that I'm looking for. And that, by the way, is the power, the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ to allow us to win the battles that we face in our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book, and we pray, as sober as it is, that we will learn from it. We pray that the things written here, Lord, would impact our thinking and change our behavior. We pray, Father, for your spirit's strength to overcome the sin in our lives, to kill it dead. We know that our sin was taken upon Jesus at the cross. We understand that that death was died. He died once and for all for those who love Him and follow Him. And so, Father, we claim that promise. And we claim even tonight that the sin in our lives, those pockets of resistance and rebellion, we claim them to be under the, the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin. And Father, for, for those tonight who have something specific, I don't know what it is, I'm just, I'm just praying blind here, Lord. But for those who have some area, some pocket of sin and rebellion that they are just struggling to break free of, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will enter in tonight and break the stranglehold. And you will crush the sin. That they might be dead to that sin and alive to Jesus Christ. And for each of us, fathers, we walk day by day in our lives. May we have the sensitivity and the discernment to recognize the sin in our lives and to immediately claim your blood over it, be healed from it, and, and see it replaced with the righteousness that you bring. Father, may we not be like Israel. We realize that the cross is the one thing that can break the cycle of judgment. And we pray that we be saved from it and truly learn to live for you and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.